I'm Jennifer Nielsen, and this is Let It Glow, episode number three, From Trauma to Triumph, My Healing Journey from Child Sexual Abuse. Welcome to the Let It Glow podcast, a happy place where you'll learn how to let your soul shine and discover new ways to design your best life. I'm your host, Jennifer Nielsen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this podcast episode. Today, we're going to be talking about my journey from child sexual abuse. So it might not be as fun, maybe a little bit uncomfortable as some of my other podcast episodes, but I do feel it's a very important topic to dig into. And my purpose really is to help you avoid unnecessary pain and for your children to avoid unnecessary pain. So I'm going to be giving you guidelines of ways that you can protect your children. And for those of you who have been victims of child sexual abuse or have children that have been victims, I want to help give you hope that there is um, joy and happiness to be found even in the midst of the pain that is caused by this type of abuse. So first, I just want to tell you a little bit about my story. I'm not going to go into specifics, mostly because it's not necessary and I don't want you to lose your appetite. And I'm in the middle of a trial right now. Um, my abuser is actually in jail right now, and we're going to be going to trial at the end of September. So I'm just going to be very careful not to mention names or anything specific, but I just kind of want to give you um, an idea of how this has affected my life so that you can have some insight on people that you may have known in your life or that you know that have experienced this if you're in that place right now. So um, first and foremost, I just want to put it out there that danger is not always a stranger. That is a myth that... I think many of us fall into, or if we fall into that trap of believing that. 93% of sexually abused children are abused by someone that they trust and know. 93%. So it's it's not that common that this happens at the park or at Disneyland or places like that. And I think that was kind of for me when my kids were little, that that was when I was on the most high alert. And when we take our guard down is when we're in our home or at the homes of people that we know or at family gatherings, or we're sending our kids to music lessons. And that is where my abuse happened, was in those times when people's guards were down, when my parents' guards were down, when the other adults in my life weren't paying attention. So I think it's important to understand that. And it's not to set fear in you, because for me, I don't believe in living a life based on fear. It just doesn't work for me. I've been there, done that. But we can be mindful and we can be aware and we can be smart. Those are things that we can do. But um, really, I want to just talk about kind of the shadow that this type of abuse casts over the life of the victims. Because for me, for the longest time, I didn't really understand where so much of my pain and my anxiety and my lack of self-love came from. And of course, there's, you know, we're complex beings. I can't say that everything that's happened in my life or everything that's gone wrong or every, you know, thing that I've struggled with directly goes back to this, but I would say a good portion of it does. 
So I just, you know, my mom was a picture taker growing up. We have, you know, back in the day when they had the film and we go to uh, Price Club is what it was called when I was younger. And we pick up our pictures and she has boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of pictures. But I just remember whenever I look back at pictures of myself, even now as a young girl, there's just, there's a lot of those pictures, like I said, because my mom loved taking them. But I know behind my smiling face, my happy face, there was fear and anxiety hidden feelings of ugliness and unworthiness. And truly being a sexually abused child is a nightmare that no one should ever have to endure. And for me, this kind of all unfolded where the memories came back very clearly about six and a half years ago. So I was one of those people that didn't have real memories until I was well into my 30s. And that always intrigued me. But I did have suspicion. I remember, um, and again, I'm not going to go into details, but different situations in my married life and when I was younger, before I got married, where I questioned and I wondered and things just seemed off, but I never really knew, like I said, until I was about in my mid-30s, which is a long time to carry around this kind of pain. And it really, truly affected my life. And I didn't go in to start getting help because of these specific memories. It was because my life was really falling apart. My marriage, just the way that I functioned, the way I viewed myself, my high level of perfectionism, OCD, all these kind of coping skills that I thought were were me, that were really just the way I, I survived. And so that's what drew me first into going to therapy, was I just was not doing well. I was not happy. And that was a very, very dark time in my life. So you can imagine after three decades of repression and denial, my world really literally came crashing down on me. And I I just wasn't in a good place. I had dug deeper into therapy and then these just, the details, these horrific memories started coming back to me. And I just really wasn't, I don't think you're ever ready to open that door. Because once you open the door, you can't close it. And it, it really nearly broke me. But... Through all of this, I was finally able to identify so much of what was affecting my life, and I was able to finally speak my truth about what had happened. But really, in all of it, was trying to heal this kind of split identity that I've created throughout my life to to survive, to function. So I had this perfectionist, happy Jennifer. That was the part that everyone else saw. But the part that I lived with, I felt shattered. I felt unlovable, and I felt very hopeless. But by God's grace, I was led to the right people to help me through this healing process. And that's one thing I will mention throughout this podcast, is there's therapists available that can help you. Don't be afraid to get help. This is a dark path to go on alone. You don't have to do it alone. And that's really what helped me dig deeper. And I'm a very religious person. And I want to kind of add this into this because part of what exasperated maybe my self-loathing and just feeling inadequate is because I was doing all the things that I was taught in my religion to do. I was very obedient. I I did all the, the checklist things. I prayed. I read my scriptures. I went to church. I served. And yet I still felt hollow. And that feeling is hard to really explain, but the more I tried to fill that emptiness, the harder I tried, you know, kind of on that hamster wheel, just trying harder and harder and harder to be better and better and better, the worse I felt. 
And that's really, I think, when I got to that point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. And truthfully, when you're in this kind of pain, you project your pain onto other people. And in my case, it was my husband. And he would push back. and But I projected so much of what was going on inside onto him. And I didn't understand what I was doing or why I was doing it. But gratefully, he never gave up on me. I have a sister who walked this journey alongside me and many very loyal friends that are like family to me that were with me every step of the way because it wasn't pretty and it wasn't easy. And there were times I didn't know how I was going to to get out of this, to get out of this dark place that I was in. But again, I'm here to tell you that there's hope and that it is possible. So once I was finally able to release this guilt and the shame, I was strong enough to finally face my abuser. This person who inflicted so much pain and terror onto me and to many others, I wasn't the only one. And having to take action against him has been a whole nother battle. And of course, he's continued to deny and and even up until he was arrested, have access to children. And that was a very frustrating time in my life because I knew what had gone on and I knew what he was capable of. And yet I had reported it to the police and that was all I could do. And because there is a case and because we have a trial coming up, I have to be very mindful of that I'm not sharing specifics or anything that might affect that. But um, it's it's not a fun thing to go and have to, to report something like something like this to law enforcement. Um, it's very intimidating. It's you kind of you go in there thinking that you're you know you're on this path and it's very hard and you get the courage to go in and yet when you go sit down to have this really difficult conversation, they have to look at it objectively that you may or may not be telling the truth. And I've dealt with things personally in my life where people very close to me have been falsely accused of some really horrible things. And so the reality is, is that just because I said it didn't make it true. And the detective made it very clear that I knew that. And so I left you know, this, this appointment with him feeling a little bit violated because I just assumed that he would, you know, you know, I don't know, maybe go arrest him that day and he would go to jail and we would just never have to deal with this again. Well, I will tell you, this has been a long process. It's been over four and a half years ago that I went in and I talked to that detective for the first time. And since then, some other brave victims have come forward. And now, like I said, we are awaiting a trial. But it's been a hard, difficult process getting us to this point. But um, I will tell you that it's worth it. And the power of using our voice, the power that it can be for good. And I would encourage all of you, and of course, not it's not always going to be to this degree, but we have the ability and the power to incite change by the words that we use and how we use choose to use our voices. And that is something that I've really taken away from this that is very important to me, that I honor what I'm feeling and that I say what I'm feeling and that I speak the truth. And that was really one of my coping skills was not speaking the truth and not connecting to what I really wanted or what I really felt. That also played into that feeling of emptiness that I lived with for so very long. Um, So anyways, what I want to talk about first is what is sexual abuse? There's many forms of child sexual abuse. And um, right now we're dealing with a day nature. We have the internet, we have computers, we have all of that. And that is one form of abuse where either people are sending inappropriate pictures online or men are camouflaging themselves as teenagers and then they're connecting with young 
adults, young children, that's a very scary place to be. So start there in your home by protecting your children with the computer that's in your home, their phone, whatever devices they have that can access the outside world, that is one place to start. But there's other types of sexual abuse. It's the act, the actual sexual act of abuse. And that is definitely the most horrific of them all, but there's pain in all of these types of abuse. So I don't want to minimize any of them. There's fondling. There's, again, showing porn, which can be done in person or over the, the computer. Exhibitionism. I don't know if I said that right, but you get the drift. And also that um, what accompanies this kind of abuse so often is the mental abuse, the mind games, the programming, the threats. These are things that I really had to deal with was the reality that people in my life could be harmed if I spoke up. And um, so there's many layers and levels to abuse, and it all is painful, and it all affects the lives of those who are who are abused. So um, I will just say, without again going into details, that what I dealt with was very violent, very cruel, and very sadistic. And it has literally affected ne- nearly every area of my life. And... It's through this healing journey that I've been able to go through that I've been able to reclaim who I was meant to be separate from this because there was a long time when I didn't know the difference between the abused Jennifer and the real Jennifer. It was just all just muddled together. So I think it's important to understand that. And um, and some of the side effects, some of the behaviors that adults who have been abused, that, that they show in their lives. And... There's many different um, ways that this can impact adults. And so I'm just going to go over a few of those. And again, not just adults, but also if children have been affected. And a lot of times there is delayed memories. That There are statistics that say that often children that are abused, they don't remember it until about the age that I remembered it. That, that seems to be a common thread among those that are abused. But there are those children that know that can go to their parents right away. And that's always the best Bet is it that to help them work through it to get the help they need so they don't carry that with them for decades and decades. So some of the long-term effects on adults who are sexually abused as children, um, from the studies that I've done, is that most adults have suicidal thoughts, and that's the combination of extreme trauma and then the inordinate pain that that brings. It's just something that just seems to be a common theme among among those who are abused. And I can tell you for myself that I don't know that I would label it as suicide thoughts because I, I it's just I'm not comfortable with that. But I do know there was times when I definitely had a death wish and I would have been happy to maybe if a truck might have taken me out or something that could have helped me alleviate the pain. Because again, the reason why people take those extreme measures like suicide is because they are in so much pain. And again, I lived with pain for so much of my life. And gratefully, I didn't ever get to that point where that was even an option for me. But there were times when it just felt like too much for me to cope with and to deal with. Some of the other effects are eating disorders, addictions, anxiety, depression, self-harm, cutting, picking, all those things that we do to kind of inflict further pain in ourselves. A lot of times these adults become disassociative and also as children, that was something that I definitely did to cope through what I had to, to live with is to disassociate. And and often relationships, there's, there's like a trail of broken relationships among victims of child sexual abuse. It's very hard to connect with someone else and to love someone else when there's so much um, 
disconnect and self-hate that comes that accompanies this kind of sexual abuse. And so speaking for me personally, this is something that I probably took the biggest hit with was my self-worth. I I had a hard time seeing the beauty in myself. I had a hard time seeing my value. And I remember I have I was a, an avid journal journaler as a, as a young woman. And I was about 15 at the time that I did this journal entry. And I'll just share it with you just to kind of give you an idea what was going on and some of the red flags that were there that I didn't really even understand at the time. So here's my journal entry. I'm just not satisfied with myself. I have ugly eyes, ugly hair, ugly color of skin, zits, rings under my eyes, long legs, ugly feet and toes. I have no shape. I look like a boy, ugly hands, and I have a stupid personality. I'm just really depressed. Whew. That's what was going on in my mind as a 15-year-old young woman. I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to handle this, but pretty much it covered everything about me. I think what was left out, my nose, lips, and ears were okay. There you go. But other than that, there was so much about myself that I could not see the beauty, the value that I had. And that just played such a big role in my life. And the beautiful thing is, is now I'm sitting here today and I'm in a place where I can genuinely say that I love myself and I look at myself and I mean, there's things I would love to tweak. Obviously I'm human, but I feel pretty fortunate that I am who I am and I'm okay with the way that I look and I embrace the things that I can't change anyway, right? So often we focus on things that we can't change and it's just futile. But as a young woman, I didn't know how to navigate that. And, you know, imagine that young woman then turning around and getting married, if not maybe three years later after that journal post, imagine the recipe for disaster. And I'm going to spend more time on other episodes talking about that evolution and how it affected my marriage and how my husband and I worked through that, because that's a, a really important, huge component to all this is how it affects relationships. So... Anyway, so we have to understand too that when there's abuse occurs, the the most basic need that we have is to be loved and to be trusted. And those two things are violated when abuse occurs. And and when this abuse is is um, this this abuse occurs, it's just this trust. It's just the most deepest level of betrayal that you can experience in the most traumatic way possible. It's very hard to repair. And we understand that when you disassociate, it is what blocks us from real relationships and connecting. That And it's it, it helps us to survive as children because as a child, I didn't have the capacity or the ability to really connect with what was going on. I had to disassociate. But again, as a reminder, those behaviors don't benefit us as adults because that same thing that's blocking us from our pain is also what blocks us from our joy what blocks us from connecting with others, what blocks us from real relationships, meaningful relationships. Now, I know this sounds a little bit bleak, and I will get to the triumph triumph part of all of this, but it's important that I help paint a picture of how this has played out for me specifically. Um, again, I didn't know how to separate that abuse me from the real me. And now that I've been able to do the work and I've been able to really identify my gifts, my strengths, my quality, my innate worth, all these things that I was just blinded to for very much of my life. Um, There was a time when um, 
I was just trying to work through this, and I had started volunteering at a place called Streetlight USA in Phoenix. And this was just actually a couple years ago that I was working with some women. We decided to throw a luau for the girls at Streetlight USA. At Streetlight USA, excuse me. And basically, what this is is this is a place where young women who have been victims of sex trafficking are brought to live. It serves almost as a foster home. It's, they also go to school, they do classes, they, they live in this home. And so naturally I was drawn to serve in this kind of capacity and meeting these girls and knowing what they've gone through. It's just a pretty life-changing experience. And so as we were planning this, this event, this luau for them, we wanted to make it extra special. But we also wanted to send them with a message and so as I was researching and trying to find, you know, what do we teach, I found this most beautiful article about the movie Moana. And it was written by a, a lady, her name is Kimberly Poovey. I hope I'm saying that correctly. But it really expressed in such a beautiful way so much of my own feelings. And so I ended up relaying this, this to these, these girls, and we also watched the movie Moana, and we had a wonderful evening. But I'm just going to take a minute and read it to you. I am currently wading through the muck and mire of recovery from child sexual abuse, and sometimes it gets ugly. My therapist says that I check out as a defense mechanism, that I numb myself by disassociating from the trauma, and I do. Because I'm terrified to feel my feelings. I'm terrified that if I really let them out, I will be crushed by them. I'm getting there slowly, one painful step at a time, but I'm getting there. So imagine my surprise when I thought what would be a fun, cheerful Disney flick left me ugly crying and gasping for breath. When Moana finally confronts the lava monster Tika, she realizes that the creature isn't what it seems. As the monster crawls towards Moana, huge, roaring, and terrifying, the future chief shows no fear. She walks calmly and confidently toward the raging bee, singing, I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. Once the monster realizes that she is finally seen for who she truly is, the fire fades, and she leans towards Moana with a sigh of relief. Her heart is restored, and it is revealed that this creature was a beautiful goddess, Tifiti, all along. This scene this scene, it undid me. I see my pain as a monster of fire. I'm so afraid of it. I want to stay far, far away, but it, it is a part of me. I've had to work so hard to get back to that place, to walk toward the fire instead of running away, back to that four-year-old little girl, to tell her that what happened to her does not change who she is. To sit in that pain for the first time in 27 years, I cannot turn away. I must approach the monster, touch its face, and tell it the truth. May I be as brave as Moana as I face what, what is part of me, but does not define me. You are not defined by your darkest hour. You are greater than what has been stolen from you. It is never too late to heal. It is never too late to make a fresh start. It is never too late to have your heart restored. I loved this beautiful example that was shared, and it really touched on so many of the feelings that I had had. And as I was able to share this with these young girls, 
that were alone, without family, without support, many of them. And just to see the little shifts in them and just what it just took just to connect with them with simple love and kindness and no expectations. It was just a really powerful experience that changed me for the better. And um, I continue to work with this organization. They're very, um, it's a very powerful organization. They have a lot of resources and being able to serve and to contribute with them has been a an important part of my healing. And it's been something I've been able to involve other women in, and it's just been a very life-changing experience. So what I want to talk about now is maybe some guidelines that can help prevent abuse. Things that we can do to help keep our children safe, specifically from sexual abuse. And so the number one, which I had talked about earlier in the podcast, is to recognize the stranger danger myth that 93% of children are abused by someone known to them. Number two, where abuse occurs. 75% of abuse actually occurs in the victim's home or in the offender's home. That's really interesting because I think so often we have these ideas that it happens in these unknown places where there's you know, lots of strangers around. And that's kind of where my radar was as a young mom. And it's just really interesting to look at that and, and to understand that that's not always the case. And also, number three is to know when sexual abuse occurs. Most sexual abuse does not happen at night, but in the after-school hours between 3 and 6 p.m. And sometimes during the summer months when maybe the kids are out of school and there's less supervision. So just keep those things in mind. Number four, teach your children that their bodies are their own and always respect their decision to say no to tickles, hugs, and kisses. And that's something I've definitely definitely done with my own children is that we do not make our children hug or greet or um, put themselves in a position of, to, of doing something that they don't want to do. Number five, be mindful who you leave your children with, from babysitters to piano teachers. And don't ever be afraid to do a background check if you feel uncomfortable with someone. Number six, use correct anatomical language. And I didn't really understand this. I've heard this before. But in one study, it shows that sex offenders reported being less likely to target children who knew the correct anatomical names for their body parts because they thought that it would increase the risk of them getting caught. And I think also another reason for that is to make this less taboo, make these conversations about natural parts of our body less uncomfortable to talk about. Number seven, monitor what your children are doing online. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Keep devices in common areas. Talk to your children about the risks of communicating with strangers online and the importance of revealing identifying information. We need to have these conversations with our children. Number eight, do not send your young children alone to the bathroom at public places. Now, of course, the first thing that comes to our mind is at restaurants or if we're at the movies, but this also includes places like church. Sometimes even if you're at a family party or at a function where there's people that you know, just be mindful. Number nine, educate your children to speak up if someone is being harmed. So often children live in fear that they're going to get in trouble or that they're going to get that adult in trouble if they see something happening. But if we can just have these conversations that can prepare children if they're ever in those situations so they'll know what to do. Number 10, and this is the most important. Keep the line of communication open. 
This will make it easier for them to come to you if something is going on or something doesn't feel right. And be careful with your reaction. If we act shocked and upset and try to talk them out of what they're telling us, that might discourage them from coming to us again. And so just be mindful and have these conversations in advance so that they know that if this were to happen, this is a safe place to come. And just having that communication is so important. So if something is going on that doesn't feel right to them, then that they know that they can come to you. Now, all of these definitely apply to my own sexual abuse. And that's what's so interesting is the timing, the places where it occurred. It wasn't a stranger. All of these things that even my own parents probably weren't aware of. But the beautiful thing is, is that you can be aware and you can be mindful. And it's not that we can protect our children all the time. And that's one thing I really want to talk about is that it's important that we don't live in fear. We don't want to give that much power to evil because there are a lot of good people out there. But do what you can do to protect your children. And this is some advice I'd want to give to those of you who are victims of child sexual abuse or any type of abuse. First, seek help from a professional. If there's pain beyond what you can bear, if you're dealing with suicidal thoughts, if you're dealing with anxiety and depression, get help. It's also important to have a support system. Do your work. It takes work to dig into the mud, dig into the the ickiness of it all. It's not fun. But on the other side of that, the peace and the joy and the connection that is possible for you, it is worth the work. And number three, don't give up. Don't give up. You can do this. You can work through this. I get the pain. I've lived it. But there is possibility for something more in your life. And that is just the message of, of, of everything today that I'm going over. That is the most important message that I want to leave with you. So what can you do if you know someone who's been abused? If you have a partner, if you have a child, if you have a friend, what can you do? I want you to validate, listen, support, and be patient. You can't fix it. Don't try to make sense of it. Don't dig into the details of it. Just be there. You can't fix it. Like I said, it takes time, but if you can just be there, that is the most valuable thing that an abused victim needs in their life is support. And you are worth fighting for. And those who love you, who've been affected by this are also worth fighting for. One thing that I thought was interesting in some of the studying that I've done is that it said that often um, adults who are abused as children are very intuitive, they're very highly intelligent, deeply sensitive, creative, and they become protectors of the innocent. And I look at those, and, and in a lot of ways, they apply to where I'm at today, the person that I am. And there's things that I love about myself. And a lot of those things that I've learned and that I've gained is as a result of the abuse. I've had to fight extra hard to figure out who I am. And so if we can look at it as what the, the other side of it, at what we can become, not who we are right now or who we are because of the, of the abuse, there's hope in that. So back to the trial that has been pressing on my mind. And that's, for me, I, I've, I know that things have been kind of the dust. It just seems unsettled lately. And I have to work extra hard to stay clear and to stay focused because it's hard to go back into that place. It took, like I said, four and a half years to get to the point where we're actually going to trial. 
And for me, I'm not waiting for this trial to give me healing, even to give me closure. I think what's important to remember is that the healing and the closure doesn't come from somebody saying they're sorry, from someone going to jail, from someone, quote unquote, getting in trouble, getting caught. That closure, that healing is such an internal, personal process. But I will be happy to have it behind me because it's not fun and it's it does bring up a lot of the old pain. But I will say that although it has taken a toll on me, this process of going to trial, it's been very, very difficult. It's had a toll on my family, especially my husband and my children, but the sacrifice is beyond what I can adequately describe. And while there's no guarantee of the outcome, I refuse to live in fear. I choose happiness and hope. And although he may have stolen the innocence of my childhood, I will no longer allow him to rob me of joy. And really the purpose of Let It Glow and all that I do is to be a beacon of light and a reminder that peace and healing may be found on the other side of pain and suffering. So to those of you who have been victims of any type of abuse, remember, you are not defined by your darkest hours. You are not alone. You are a warrior. You are worthy of love. You are enough. So until next time, ladies, shine on. Thanks for listening to the Let It Glow podcast. If you enjoyed this show, share the love with a friend. This podcast can be found on iTunes or subscribe on my website at www.let-it-glow.com. And remember, let go and let it glow.